This is John 15, 1 to 8. This is the word of God. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Amen. Um, on the way here this evening, folks, I had a thought flash across my mind. I want to do something tonight that I don't think I've ever done uh, for a congregation here at Kirkpatrick. I want to thank you for coming. I don't normally feel inclined to thank people for coming to church because I don't have any sense that you're coming here to be with me or, you know, you're here to meet the Lord. Um, it's not really for me to, to thank you. That seems a weird thing. But it flashed across my mind. I thought, if anybody's sitting at home and they're looking out the window and they're, they're sitting by the fire or the TV's on and they've even a slightest inkling of, you know, goodness, if I don't go, who is going to go? And you thought, well, I'll, I'll go. I'll go and be part of it. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Union with Christ. I, I'm learning a lot in this series, by the way. I'm not really a theological uh, preacher. I don't spend a lot of time teaching uh, historical or systematic theology. So studying this um, theology of the Reformation has, has been a bit of a challenge for me, but I have loved it. So I hope, hope tonight God gives us something good. Before we do anything, we're going to get a bit liturgical, okay? So we're going to use a catechism. First question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, don't worry if you don't know what that is. I barely know. Um, I could bluff, but I don't really know much about it. But it has a brilliant first question. And um, by the way, this won't be easy for us because we're not used to doing this kind of thing. But we're going to, you know how catechisms work? Um, there's always a question. Uh, so there were a way of teaching. Uh, what people did is they formulated a, a series of questions. And if, if a person could learn these questions and the answers, they'd, they'd be learning a summary of some of the doctrine of, of the church. So Heidelberg is one of those catechisms. We're going to have a go at a first question. I, I really just want us to read it together. Is, is that font just about big enough? Can people read that? Yeah? Okay. So... Um, well, 
let's, let's just read it together, will we? I, okay, let's go. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head and also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I said would find that hard. I think I was right. Um, well done. Thank you. So a couple of weeks ago, we were here and we were talking uh, in this series, uh, Reformation 500, we were talking about the importance of the reformers' rediscovery of God's grace. Uh, and I said that evening, uh, I hoped you would maybe learn something, maybe understand grace a little bit better. But more than that, I wanted you to go home feeling some joy, maybe with a smile on your face. Uh, um, that's not easy for Presbyterians, I know that. Uh, I know what I'm working with here. I know who I am. Joy and smiling and all that. You know, baby steps, let's, let's start and see where, where it takes us. I was heartened when I spoke to a few people afterwards in a sense that, yeah, um, there's something in God's grace that should put a smile on her face. This week, as we come to this next part in the series, and we're going to be talking about union with Christ, I think it just gets better. So if you were here and smiled the last time, who knows, it might happen twice in a fortnight. And, and wouldn't that be great? Actually, as I've been trying to work some of this out, understand it a little bit better, it seems to me that union with Christ might be another aspect of what we thought about last time when we talked about God's grace. So whenever I talked uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, that evening about the Fröhliche Wechsel, the joyful exchange of Luther, um, the idea that God um, takes our, our, in Jesus, he takes our sin on himself and he gives us his righteousness. Um, it's a beautiful and it's a relatively simple image and I think some people warm to that a bit. As I've reflected on that, it seems to me that I've probably understood the first half of that exchange most of my life and certainly better than the second. I don't know if you would identify with that. So the idea that Christ takes my sin is one that I, I was taught that from I was knee high to a grasshopper and, and then the moments when I, when I see it or get a new insight, it, it's still brings a great joy to my heart. So that, that side that, that he takes my sin on himself, I, I think I, I, I've understood that for most of my life. But this second half of the exchange that he gives the righteousness and the perfection of Christ to me, I think I've found it harder to get my head and heart around that. What does Paul mean when he talks, as he often does, about us being in Christ? What does that mean? How does that work? What's that all about? Well, that's probably the territory that we're moving into this evening when we think about union with Christ. One, one thing that struck me with most of these things that we've looked at, um, I think I maybe talked about this two weeks ago, I used to be very clear that Catholics didn't believe in grace. 
the pre-reformed church didn't believe in grace and then Protestants came along and discovered grace. Turns out that that's a, a very unfair caricature. It's, it's the same here this evening. Union with Christ existed in the pre-Reformation church. And it was actually quite a big deal. So the difference that came with the Reformation wasn't the, the discovery of union with Christ. It was a recovery of what's really going on there. Long before the Reformation, people understood that God wanted to, to be with us. Uh, so a lot of the, the pre-Reformation theologians would have understood the language of marriage, that God is in Christ uh, marrying uh, his people. So the story of scripture is like a, a great romance. The difference, uh, what we're going to try and think about for a moment is the, the, the way in which the, the pre-reformed church thought about this and what the reformers then brought to the debate. So union with Christ is already very prevalent before the, the Reformation. If, if you want to find people who taught it and who were known for teaching it, Bernard of Clairvaux is a name. I, I remember that from doing my church history studies at college. His dates are 1090 to 1153. So we're going back a long way. You're going back at least 400 years, maybe 400 years uh, before uh, Luther's uh, Reformation. Now the interesting thing is Luther and Calvin both really liked Bernard of Clairvaux and learned a lot from him. So that's worth noticing. He was in some regards an inspiration to them. One of his most famous works, Bernard, is um, 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. Now I'm smiling as I even contemplate that. I, I don't know how anybody could preach 86 sermons on the Song of Songs. The weird thing is he wasn't even finished. The work was unfinished and he died before he got to complete the series. So these guys, that just shows how much they were into this idea of, you know, the way they would have interpreted the Song of Songs is as a parable of the love of Jesus for his people. So they... So if we imagine that we have nothing to learn from the pre-Reformation church, there was a, an intensity of longing for love with God that I wonder um, whether, whether we can, can say the same to the same extent. Uh, what, I, what I'll do for a moment is read a part of Bernard's third sermon of the 86. We'll, we'll leave some of them out. Um, and he begins with this mystical encounter of a believer with Jesus. And it gives us a good idea of how he would describe union with Christ. He says, growth in grace begins, uh, brings an expansion of confidence. You will love with great ardor and knock on the door with greater assurance in order to gain what you perceive to still be wanting in you. The one who knocks will always have the door open to him. It is my belief that to a person so disposed, God will not refuse the most intimate kiss of all, a mystery of supreme generosity and ineffable sweetness. You've seen the way we must follow the order of the procedure. First we cast ourselves at his feet, we weep before the Lord who made us, deploring the evil we have done. Then we reach out for the hand that will lift us up that will steady our trembling knees. And finally, 
When we shall have obtained these favours through many prayers and tears, we will humbly dare to raise our eyes to his mouth, so divinely beautiful, not merely to gaze upon it, but, I say it with fear and trembling, to receive its kiss. Christ the Lord is a spirit before our face, and he who is joined to him in a holy kiss becomes through his good pleasure one spirit with him. Forgive the long quotation. Let me say a couple of things before I come to the main point. Yes, it's historical language. It'll have left almost all of us behind. He was writing almost nine centuries ago. The language of physical intimacy is not one that we're used to, not of thinking of our relationship with uh, God, but then maybe we need to reread the Song of Songs sometime. You can't deny when you hear Bernard preach like this that he wants to be with Jesus. He wants an intimacy and a closeness with Jesus. He's longing for union with Christ. But here's the thing, the thing that we need to notice. Bernard's preaching right out of a medieval understanding of union with Christ. And that's why he talks about an order of procedure. Through many prayers and tears and, and say the sacraments of the Catholic Church, the Christian's going to get closer and closer to Jesus until we finally have perfect union. It's a process. To be with Jesus is a process. It's a journey. We're not united to Christ until we've followed the journey. And this, this is where the the difference with the mainstream reformers came. They had a very different view of union with Christ. For them, it was not the outcome of a process. It's a reality that sets in motion a process. So the reformers uh, used, they, I think they, they were trying to understand how the, the pre-Reformation position had come to, to be. So they made a distinction between union with Christ and communion with Christ. Whenever they talked about communion with Christ, they talked about how I feel in my relationship with Jesus. And, and guys, we, we know about this, don't we? That fluctuates. So some days, uh, if, even if you think about your experience of coming to church, sometimes you're, you're with the songs, you're hearing the prayers, you're, you know, you'd if you were that kind of person, you'd raise your hands in the air and shout amen. Uh, Peter Quigley's not here this evening to shout amen to that, but that's what you'd be doing. You'd be, you'd be with the Lord and you'd be... And some days you're not. Some days you'd happily sit in the back corner or not come along at all. You're wondering why everyone else seems to be so connected with God and and you're not. So that, for the reformers, was our communion with Christ. Now here's what the reformers said about that. They said that the foundation for our life with God is our union with Christ, not our communion with Christ. Puritan writer called Richard Sibbs, also writing on the Song of Songs, and it gives us a good idea of the reformed view of union with Christ. Union, he says, is the foundation for communion. 
Union with Christ is a strong thing, a stable thing, a solid foundation on which we can stand and know real and lasting joy. So this emphasis on union with Christ as the springboard for communion with Christ, that stemmed from their, their strong belief on the centrality of Jesus. He really is the source, the center, the foundation for it all. So Calvin was able to say this. It's indisputable to say that no one is loved by God apart from Christ. This is the beloved son in whom dwells and rests the Father's love and from it then pours itself upon us. Just as Paul teaches, we receive grace in the beloved. Folks, I don't know if you heard that first sentence. It sounds scary. It is indisputable to say that no one is loved by God apart from Christ. If Calvin had stopped there, we'd be in big trouble, all of us. His point, though, is that God doesn't have some quantity of love that he divides out between all those in the world who are his. I'll be honest, I've sometimes imagined that. Anyone ever done that exercise? So there's one and a half billion Christians in the world. God's love cut into one and a half billion bits, yeah? Okay. Calvin says, no, that's not how it works. He says that God gives all of his love to his son. And from his son, all of his love flows to me and to you. This is where it gets a bit crazy. Too good to be true. God loves us with what Sally Lloyd-Jones would call the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The same love that he has for Jesus. He loves you and me. I told you this was good. Do you see now the journey that the reformers uh, have made on this idea of union with Christ? Bernard and the theologians uh, before the Reformation, they, they talk about a process. This is something you strive to achieve to, to one day maybe get to have union with Christ. Calvin says no. As soon as we come to Christ and receive in faith from God, we have union with Christ. It's the starting point. It's not the end of the process. We, we read a few moments ago, Stephen read for us John 15. It's probably one of the best images in the Bible to show us the, the connection that we have with Jesus Christ if we're his disciples. For Calvin, this was a crucial passage. Jesus is the vine. He's filled with the life and the love of God. And if we're attached to him, we have life. And if we're unattached to him, we don't. I'm going to thank one of my previous colleagues for leaving me with an image of this that I'll never forget. Anybody here the day Sam did a children's address um, and he brought a branch that he'd cut off a shrub in his garden? Does anybody remember that? He'd cut it off like it was a Sunday and I think he'd cut it off on the Monday or the Tuesday of that week. It had only been cut off for five days 
and it was as dead as can be. I think Richie popped up in the pulpit and handed it down to him. When we're not in the vine, we're dead. There is no life outside of the vine. And in contrast, whenever we're engrafted, then all the, the life of Jesus starts to, to flow in me. Listen again to Calvin. He asks the million dollar question. How do we receive those benefits which the father bestowed only on his begotten son? First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we're separated from him and all that he suffered and done for our salvation of the human race, all of that remains useless to us and is no value to us. Therefore, to share with us what he's received from the Father, he had to become ours and to dwell within us. All that he possesses is nothing until we grow into one body with him. Later in the Institutes, Calvin put it like this, as soon as you become engrafted into Christ through faith, you're made a son of God, an heir of heaven, a partaker in righteousness, a possessor of life, and you obtain not the opportunity to gain merit, but all the merit of Christ's, for they are communicated to you. Folks, I've said these ideas, grace that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, union with Christ that we're talking about here tonight, they're, they're not separate ideas, actually. They're, they're very much related to one another. So union with Christ makes sense of the, the grace of the gospel. There can't be a gospel without union for, with Christ. So, so for example, we say that union with Christ is God's radical solution to the radical problem of our sin. You see, it turns out that God doesn't just want to wash some sins off our lives, you know, off, off the surface, uh, and then leave us mostly unchanged. He wants us reborn. He, he wants a whole new life in us. That's why Paul's able to say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, we have died because Jesus died. We've been raised because he's been raised and we now have his life within us. That's what Luther was talking about, uh, what we were thinking about last week. I give God my sin and he gives me his righteousness. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Calvin says this, the end of the whole gospel is that God communicate Christ to us, that we may from him enjoy eternal life, that in a world, that in a word, sorry, all heavenly treasures be so applied to us that they are no less ours than Christ's himself. That underlined part is crazy. All heavenly treasures so applied to us that they're no less ours than Christ himself. This is union with Christ. This is, this is hard to understand 
but I think it's helped me to understand what I was always taught in the gospel. Union with Christ is, is helping me a little bit. We, we were always taught, I suppose what I've described in the divine exchange or the joyful exchange, we, we were taught that Christ takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. But there's something a bit weird about that in that sin doesn't really feel like something you can hand over to somebody else. You know that illustration about, you know, you're in the courtroom, the judge pronounces you guilty, and then he comes down and he takes your punishment on himself. You, you know that illustration? You've, you've heard that? It's lovely in one regard, but in another regard, it doesn't quite work because it's my sin. You know, it, it's mine. There, there's a part of it that, that always has a question mark for me. How can I hand over my sin? How can he hand over his righteousness? He doesn't. Actually, he doesn't. He comes in and my sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes mine. It doesn't happen from a distance. These aren't things we hand back and forward. He and I become one. Calvin puts it like this. We do not therefore contemplate him, Christ, outside of ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness might be imputed to us. But because we put on Christ and are engrafted into his body, in short, he deigns to make us one with him. If you, if you jump back, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, jump back to that marriage image that Luther introduced to all of this. If Christ and the believer really are one, then the sin-righteousness swap, it's not a problem. It's like what happens when a man marries a woman. In the marriage, the man shares all that he has with the woman, and the woman shares all that she has with the man. It's as if Christ is our rich husband. Do you remember we said this? At his own cost, he pays all of his wife's debts and shares all of his enormous wealth with her. Folks, I'm beginning to, I just bought what Tim Keller says is the best book on union with Christ because I, once I'm beginning to get this, I, I want to get this. This feels like one of the most exciting discoveries I've made for years. I want to understand more of this. I, I suspect we don't really believe this because it sounds too good to be true. The best preachers down through the ages always tried to keep this message before people. So Charles Spurgeon, preaching in Victorian England, here's what he said. Remember that he sees us now in Christ. He sees us in Christ to have died, in him to have been buried, in him to have risen again, and as the Lord Jesus Christ is pleasing to the Father, so in him we are well pleasing to the Father also. It, isn't that just amazing? If then our acceptance with God stands on the footing of Christ's acceptance with God, it standeth firmly. If we stood before God in our own individual righteousness, our ruin would be sure and speedy. But in Jesus, our life is hid beyond peril. Will you hear this? Firmly believe that until the Lord rejects Christ, he cannot reject his people.
until he repudiates the atonement and the resurrection, he cannot cast away any of those with whom he has entered into covenant through Jesus Christ. We're safe. We're secure because we're in union with Christ. I remember as a kid when I began to understand grace, I made that calculation that a kid would make. This is amazing. If you can do anything you want and be forgiven for it, isn't this amazing? And of course, whenever that idea of God's total grace was introduced to a world that that hadn't been thinking that way for a long time, there was a lot of kickback, a lot of opposition. The problem, the the pre-reformed theologians were saying, the problem with this comfort that we're offering of God's grace, the problem is, how are people then going to live godly lives? If you can do whatever and know that God's going to forgive it, how will they live godly lives? Union with Christ again answers that question. You see, for Calvin, if salvation is union with Christ, there simply isn't a problem here. We're not united with Christ so that we can get some reward. Listen to this bit carefully. If you're dozing off, wake up, right? Listen to this. We don't come to Christ for some other reward. Maybe you were invited to Christ for another reward. You probably were if you heard the gospel that I heard preached as a kid. The reward was, come and have your sins forgiven and I've got in my back pocket a ticket for heaven and you can have it if you pray this prayer. So the reward becomes the ticket to heaven. That's not the gospel. In the gospel, the reward is Jesus Christ. He is the reward. God is the gospel. Jesus is the end. Claire and I were talking a little bit about this on Friday night. Funny, she'd come across, she was listening to a podcast or a bit of teaching and there were Christian folks in some ministry or other and they were going on and on about delighting in God's grace. And there was something about it that she didn't get. She said, I, I don't, I don't get that. I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. They're just going on and on and on about delighting in God's grace. I said, I think I know what the problem is. I think I'm getting it from the, the reformers are helping me see this. The reformers would say, the reason that doesn't sound quite right to you is that there's no such thing as God's grace. It's not a thing. God's grace is Jesus. He he gives us Jesus and therein lies his grace. Don't beat yourself up if you you can't grab this abstract idea of God's grace and, and celebrate it and rejoice in it. Ask yourself, are you glad that he's given you his son? That he's given you his son to indwell you? And if you have that, then you're delighting in his grace. In his earliest days, Calvin understood this. 
whatever great theological ideas he, he was to have through, throughout the decades, throughout his ministry, Calvin identified himself finally as a lover of Jesus. I'm just going to see if we can pop up that next slide, Johnny. This is Calvin's crest, or his uh, seal, if you like. Did, did I get that right? Stephen, I don't know where he got this from, but he's chosen our closing song. We're going to sing it in a few minutes. Lord, you have my heart. What about that? We didn't talk about that. We're nearly done. Jesus doesn't just offer us forgiveness, doesn't just offer us a ticket to heaven. He comes to indwell us by his spirit and to say, let's, let's be together, you and I. Luther wrote that through faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. All that he has becomes ours. Rather, he himself becomes ours. Folks, if that's true, then this question of how are Christian people who've received grace going to live godly lives, it's a no question. Jesus is in us. He's going to start to transform us. Reeves and Chester, the guys whose book we have been using as a bit of a framework for this uh, and who I've plagiarized uh, very heavily this evening, they say the fact that Christians are united to Christ and share his life must affect them. We've not been given a saved status and are then left to get on with holy lives all by ourselves. We are united in Christ. We have a new heart and a new spirit within us. I'm going to finish with a couple of more down to earth. That, some of that's very hard to follow and I, I get that. I'm... I'll be able to explain it better in 10 years' time once I've got to understand it myself. I want to share an illustration with you that might help with some of this. I'm, I'm thinking about this question of how union with Christ might be the only way that we'll actually be transformed. It's, it's, a, it's a somewhat unpleasant image, so forgive me for that. I suffered for years with athlete's foot Anybody has ever suffered with that? I got quite a stubborn case of it that I couldn't get rid of. So, um, I, I don't know. I must have picked it up in my sort of young adulthood, maybe playing sports in a sports changing room or something. I, I've only got rid of it about uh, maybe four or five years ago. So, I wonder if I had it for about 20 years. So, there was a foot of mine that was almost, you know, quite substantially infected. And if you've ever experienced this, it, it it's in your skin, but then it can go into your toenails. So toenails can have uh, a, a sort of a fungal infection. And, and once they have it, it's very stubborn. So I would have tried a whole load of different things. There's powders you can buy, creams you can buy, all sorts of things. 20 years later, you're not, you're sort of running out of... I remember one day I was down at the GP uh, talking about something else, and I, I asked the GP, I said... Is there anything can be done? He said, yeah. 
you, you can't change that with creams or powders. You know, showed him my foot and the toenails. He said that you need to take some you need to take some tablets that purify that infection out of your bloodstream. So I took the tablets and the whatever infection that was in my blood was arrested and probably took another two years. Toenails don't grow very quickly apparently. Hadn't really been tracking that, but took a long time. Why do I tell you that? There's stuff inside me that no amount of sticking plasters and creams and it's never ever gonna go near it. You know, the person I am, it's just not happening. Unless somebody comes and puts something inside of me that can kill that infection, I'm stuck with this for the rest of my life. But if he does, he could arrest some of that. And some of that stuff could stop growing in me. That would be step one. Might still take years for the ugliness to grow out. I think this is what union with Christ is about in terms of our transformation. Got to get right inside us, into our blood and kill off some of the bad stuff that's in there. What are you going to do with this? This idea that we really are one with Jesus. Uh, I better warn you, you'll probably hear me talking about this in future sermons because I want to learn about it. It just feels, feels so important now. Here's a, a suggestion, a starting point. I think, I think we understand this idea that we can know God's presence with us in the everyday, don't we? You know, anywhere we are. Here's what I want you to take home tonight. You can't not know God's presence anymore once you believe this. Because you're one with Jesus. This is beginning to dawn on me and I, I revisited a, a kind of thinking um, and then I was chatting to somebody else in the church who'd been talking about this, practicing the presence of God. Taking time in my day to, to notice this reality that he really is with me. I think I mentioned this the staff team. I had a problem with that. I thought, I get that. I can practice God's presence a lot of the time. But what if I'm writing emails and I'm having to concentrate really hard to give a, a thoughtful, empathetic, accurate response to this difficult question. Can I practice God's presence in that? And God said to me, yes, you can. He gave me this idea. He said, here's what I want you to pray with me. Just simply pray, let's do this together. Just invite me to, you say to me, Lord, let's do this together. Help me with this, this email, this difficult pastoral visit I'm going to make, this whatever message that I don't feel prepared. Let's do this together. So I, I printed it out on an A4 page and I've set that behind my monitor. Um, I don't know about you, a lot of my struggles happen at, at a screen. Let's do this together. 
He's, he's here. I wonder, could we start to believe that and live out of it? Folks, I'm going to ask you now, after hearing and forgetting everything that I've just said, to re, uh, re-speak the words of the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Because I think it might feel a little bit different after our thinking tonight. Let's speak this together. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, belong in life and in death, and am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Amen.